Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Psychologists agree that we are better off when we are in touch with our emotions, good and bad. And that was a really interesting find as well, that sometimes you have to be sad to be happy. And being sad sometimes can counterintuitively make you happier. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Jason Goodger, Commissioning Editor at BBC Focus magazine. What does it mean to be happy? Is it the pleasure of doing nothing, or as the Italians would say, dolce far niente? Is it the sense of community and shared contentment that the Maori people find in performing a hacker? Or maybe it's the Finnish habit of drinking at home in your pants. In her book, The Atlas of Happiness, Helen Russell explores what happiness means to people around the world and how what makes us happy is intricately linked into our cultures. She also looks into what the research has to say about why these things might make us happy, and suggests ways that we could experience happiness in all its forms ourselves. In this episode, she speaks to BBC Focus online assistant Sarah Rigby about what she's learnt about happiness, misconceptions about the hacker, and what we Brits could do to make ourselves happier. First of all, can you please tell us a little bit about your book? Yeah, absolutely. So The Atlas of Happiness is a look at the global secrets of how to be happy. So the unique happiness concepts that people in different countries around the world are using to keep themselves going and keep themselves upbeat and positive every day. 
So it sounds from your book like people from different cultures have really varied ideas of what it means to be happy and how they go about trying to be happy. Why do you think that is? I think uh, as someone who is from England and but has been living in Denmark for the last six years, you notice that there are different uh, approaches to happiness, as you say. So some cultures have more communal approaches, collective happiness ideas are around that, and some are more individualistic. So we might think of the UK and America, for example, as being quite individualistic, whereas the Nordic countries have a very particular kind of communal idea of happiness, but it's often just for the Nordics. Um, um, I looked into New Zealand, into Maori communities there, and there it's it's very much the idea of communal happiness. Um, so I guess it depends where you are. And, and South Africa, Ubuntu, this idea that if one person is, is unhappy, then how can you be happy yourself, that I am because you are? So that's a, it's a whole kind of radical different way of thinking about it, whereby you are hoping that the people around you are OK and that will make you better off. I was interested, going back to what you were saying about New Zealand, I was interested in um, your explanation of, of the hacker, because to us, it's something we often perceive as something that's sort of almost aggressive and powerful. We associate it with the New Zealand's rugby team. But um, from what it says in your book, that's not really the case. Can you please explain what it is about and how it relates to happiness? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. So as as you say, yeah, I had exactly the same impression as you until I uh, met a hacker instructor, um, I, I, a Maori guy who was explaining it to me and and let me have have a go and, and trying to teach me the principles of it. And it's in fact, it's about communication. It's about unity and ultimately love. The idea is that you will... Um, be part of something with with the people around you. So if one person's not having a nice time, again, the whole dynamic of the group changes so that everybody is included and everyone is involved. Um, and there are different hackers. There's one. There's there's ones for weddings. There's ones for funerals. They do them in schools. There are all female ones. So yeah, it's, it's very much more than just the the all black blacks idea that we would see of of these very um, macho men doing this this dance before they try to uh, win a game. It's it's much more than that. And it's it's something very powerful, I think, about getting in touch with your feelings in a way that I certainly wasn't used to. And I think a lot of people in the UK, uh, it is very much outside of their comfort zone. According to the NHS, um, one in four adults in the UK experiences at least one diagnosable mental health problem in any given year. So, I mean, a lot of people do think that that could be to do with the way we sort of bottle things up and we don't talk about things. So do you think we could learn from the Maori? Yeah, I think so, certainly. And and I talk about England as well and this idea of um, bottling things up. And it, it's been a coping strategy of thought of sorts over the years. And it, it's linked to these ideas about blitz spirit and stiff upper lip. But certainly psychologists agree that we are better off when we are in touch with our emotions, good and bad. And that was a really interesting find as well, that sometimes you have to be sad to be happy. And being sad sometimes can counterintuitively make you happier. So that that was a really important one, I think, as a, as a someone who's raised a, a Catholic and went to an all-girls school in, in England and, and feel a lot of the repression that we associate with, with uh, Britishness over the ages, I certainly felt as though getting in touch with your emotions is something other countries are doing better and they seem to be happier as a result. I was also particularly interested by your section on, on Bhutan and gross national happiness. So that intrigued me because 
well, first of all, can you please explain to us what gross national happiness is? Yeah, absolutely. So um, gross national happiness is this philosophy that guides the government of Bhutan, whereby um, happiness is measured and prioritised ahead of financial gain. And it's kind of been in practice throughout Bhutanese history. But um, the King Wanchuk IV told a journalist from the Financial Times in the 70s that um, gross national happiness is more important than gross national product. And since then, Bhutan has, has really championed policies that measure prosperity via the spiritual, physical, environmental even, and and um, social health of its people. And the environment thing is really interesting as well, because it's one of the few developing countries putting sustainability at the heart of its agenda. Uh, there are lots of studies that show the link between people who care for the environment tend to be happier, and also people who uh, are unhappy tend to consume more. That's pretty bad for the environment, because you buy things to make you happier. So in Bhutan, they, it's measured every two years as a, a big survey nationwide and everybody is is asked how they are feeling uh, about various different measures of their life and gross national happiness is now the prism through which everything that the government uh, implements is filtered through so for example they will say no to McDonald's coming to Bhutan despite the money because they don't want to see the obesity levels that they've seen in other countries just for example um, they it's a country of contradictions. They're not saying they've nailed it. They're saying they're committed to working on it. So they have um, teachers in schools still wear the traditional robes, but kids in Bhutan are learning STEM subjects. They even have their own MIT lab. They're learning computer programming. So they're really taking old and new, seeing how these work together. Um, and another great example that I love with their commitment to the environment is they sell, said no to joining the World Trade Organization because doing so would have meant opening up Bhutan's forests in a way that wasn't compatible with their goals for the environment. They've committed to make sure that um, at least 70% of Bhutan, I believe, is covered with forest in perpetuity. So it's a real commitment to, to making sure that the country stays stays in a happy place for future gener generations. So I think that's something we can all learn from. So that sounds like it's something that's worked really well for Bhutan. Do you think it's realistic for other countries to try and adopt a similar mindset? Well, uh, Ban Ki-moon, um, when he was a at the UN, he uh, tried to take the, the philosophies used there and bring them to the rest of the world, I think, in 2011. So there, there have been moves to, to uh, translate uh, Bhutan's philosophy and try and spread it throughout the rest of the world. It's something I think we will remember David Cameron talking about, um, you know, measuring happiness and, and there, other countries are, are considering it, some in, in more of a sort of piecemeal way, but but other countries are taking it to heart a bit more. So it, it's certainly spreadable. It's never going to be as easy in a, in a tiny Himalayan nation, but it's possible to have that as a goal. What sort of interested me most about this concept of gross na national happiness is that it sort of stuck out to me from all the others and that it seems like it's less sort of cultural and more, more, to, more like a policy. Um, do you think that is analogous to any of the other sort of happiness ideas that you've seen anywhere else or is this very specific to Bhutan? 
That's a great question. I think living in Denmark, I have a, um, a bias, I guess, uh, and, and more knowledge about that area. And certainly in Denmark, there's a term called Arbeidsglul, um, from Arbeider, the Danish for work, and Glul, the word for happiness, that literally means happiness at work. So that's, you know, that's a cultural concept that's something that Scandinavians prioritize and Danes in particular. But you're right that it helps when the infrastructure and the government are behind this. And that's the case in Denmark, where the working hours are much shorter than they are in the rest of Europe. Um, the, the official working week is 37 hours, but OECD studies show that the average Dane is putting in 33 hours a week. So the, the structure is set up to facilitate this Arbeitsglut, to, to help make this happiness concept something that people can enjoy no matter where they are in the country, no matter what their job, what their um, social class, what their income. So I think certainly that helps. But there are other examples where there is no no government sort of help behind that. Um, I guess I'm thinking of, of in India, Jugard, this idea of, of a hack or finding something that works for now. And that's almost in spite of the government and the infrastructure where, of course, there's still widespread poverty. Many people are living very hard lives, but people are finding a way to keep going. So it, it sort of works both ways. The, the human spirit is pretty strong at finding a way to to thrive and, and keep going, uh, whether the infrastructure is is on their side or not. How does this idea of innovation and creativity in Jugard for, for the Indians, how does that help them to be happy? Well, it, it really plays into resilience, which we have seen in lots of studies from psychologists to be really important for happiness, this ability to bounce back. And um, it also plays into the idea of... Um, as, as a mother of three young children myself, the, the good enough mother idea that, that many of your listeners all have heard of, that it, it really plays into the idea of just being a good enough, good enough person. If you've if you've got a hack that's good enough for now, or you've you found a way to make the best of what you've got, it may not be perfect, but you'll get there. That feels like quite a positive message, and I think um, you know we've seen that perfectionism is not good really for anyone. And this is a way of, of just sort of getting on with things for now. Um, it's, yeah, it's it's not perfect, as I say, in India with poverty. Um, we all think the best things in life may well be free, but we know that money buys us happiness to a certain level um, that we need to be comfortable and to be happy. And many people in India do not have this. But in a place where you do have food on the table, where your basic needs are taken care of, then Jugard is a really positive uh, attributes that you can that can help you fly almost that can help you really soar in your workplace and I spoke to various Indian friends who have now left India and are working in different countries and they all identified Jugard as being something really important in their work environments and in their relationships this belief that we'll find a way and we'll make it work is is something quite interesting in these days of many of us suffer from imposter syndrome and it almost feels like the antithesis to this this idea well yeah of course i i can make this work it's fine um so yes that that was quite inspiring to me you mentioned actually in your book a, a study from the university of cambridge that uh, suggests that this jugard mindset could help struggling or emerging economies could you explain that a little bit please yeah well i guess this idea i guess going a 
again, back to sustainability, um, that we don't always need more resources. We don't always need more of things to make it work. We can be flexible and be creative using fewer resources. Creativity experts will often say that there is a freedom within boundaries. And if you have restrictions of certain kinds, it, it almost sparks creativity. It helps your, your brain be able to problem solve and think of interesting options. And yes, this study from the University of Cambridge claimed that Jugard could not only benefit emerging economies, it could serve as a way out of the financial crisis for developed economies who need to become better at this flexible, creative thinking without consuming more resources all all the time. So that's that's a really interesting thing. Again, it, it's not much use to people who have not got enough to put food on the table in India, but in other countries where that is the case, there's this idea that we should really all be living like this. We should all be learning to think more creatively and more flexibly with what we have so that we're not consuming resources all the time. Some, some of these ideas of happiness sort of relate back. There's a sort of common theme of it'll be all right. Like this regard, if you know, if you can think creatively and innovate, then it'll be all right. So some of these ideas are quite sort of proactive um, in that sense. But also some of the ideas you mentioned, like, um, for example, the Dolce Farniente in Italy, the, the pleasure of doing nothing, that's quite relaxed. So yes, Yes, and it feels quite uh, revolutionary, at least to me. Relaxing is not my uh, natural state. Um, but yeah, Italians are very good at it. They, There is, I guess, because there has been uh, political unrest and there's been corruption, there's still very high unemployment. Um, Italy is still a relatively new country in Europe until the 1800s. It was ruled by other people. So many Italians will describe feeling like the rebellious teenagers of Europe. And yes, there's this sense of, well, why should I bother? Why shouldn't I just keep, just grasp hold of moments of pleasure and take time out? So rather than saving up your your rest for an annual holiday or for having a big blowout at the weekend, uh, Italians are a lot better typically at spreading their fun throughout the day and just taking moments of rest and relaxation and doing nothing, which is fairly, it feels quite, quite radical. I think certainly as someone who used to live in London, and I'm sure people in other big cities will will recognise this sort of constant busyness and bribing yourself to get through the day, and uh, you know self-medicating with various whatever your your crutch of choice may be to to get through the chaos. I think Italians are a lot better at sinking into the chaos and letting it wash over them. And anyone who's ever been to Italy will you know remember car horns or you know the traffic or just the the vibrancy and, the, and there is a lot of chaos and that's celebrated there rather than seen as an extra stressor. So, um, so yes, that's Dolce Niente. That's one of my resolutions for this year. <laughs> it's a very good resolution. So someone reading your book and looking for inspiration on how to be happy, do you think that there is any one idea in particular they should draw on or do you think it, do you think it depends on the, the reader? I think it's a rather beautiful sort of bibliotherapy that people have so far been in touch and said, well, I need this. And so then I will prescribe them something or they will say, well, I was feeling this. And so I found this. And um, so the Swedish uh, entry is, is small tonsteller, which is um, translates roughly as wild strawberry patch, which is from a, an old Swedish children's book. But it basically has come to mean an escape where you can go to when it's all feeling too much, where you can restore yourself. And this can be as simple as a 
a bench in your local park or a, a favorite chair in your house. Or for me, with a very young family, it's the back of my wardrobe behind all the coats where I'll sometimes <laughs> just go and hide and just take a minute and I'll come back restored and you'll go before you reach, reach breaking point and then you'll feel better. So uh, there's little things that are very helpful like that. And I think as well, um, the Brazilian entry. So there's a Portuguese word, sodaji, which is sort of a melancholy and the pleasure of reminiscing. So it's not always a, a jazz hands happy feeling. As I said, that you know, psychologists have found that it is counterintuitively good for us to be sad sometimes because it's cathartic, because we end up being more grateful for what we've got. So it's this idea that sometimes it's good to think back, flick through old photos or to feel sad about something and properly mourn it, as we talked about getting those emotions out is, is a really positive thing. So, yeah, there are, there are some like that as well that are perhaps less, um, less within the comfort zone of, of most of us growing up in the UK or living in the UK. So that felt like quite a useful one to remember. Um, I'm just trying to think of any other ones that people have particularly called out recently. I guess the Japanese one, Wabi Sabi, this beauty of imperfection um, and the beauty of nature. And that feels really helpful at this time of year as well, when perhaps things aren't so green, things aren't looking so beautiful. None of us are feeling quite so fresh, but that there is a beauty in aging and in the imperfection of nature and of people and growing old. And you may have come across the, the Japanese art of kintsugi, which is mending broken ceramics rather than trying to mend them really carefully so that the cracks don't show. You mend them with um, metallic lacquer so that the cracks, rather than being disguised, are highlighted and celebrated in pure gold. And there's something rather wonderful about seeing that as an approach to life, that we all have scars of various kinds. But instead of hiding them in these days where we're all trying to perhaps be more authentic or we are having a bit of a sea change uh, at the moment that actually we all need to be a bit more honest about who we are and say this is us cracks and all and and there is a beauty in imperfection however we are that could seem quite like a like a quite radical idea actually especially for us and and, and in america it seems as well where it there's you know we sort of celebrate the idea of, of youthfulness even on, just on an appearance yeah. level yeah so that could be something that's quite hard for us to adopt. Yeah, and certainly as as a mother of three approaching my 40th birthday, and I think this is, um, yeah, that there is certainly the useful thing is, is, is a big one. It's a big sort of acceptance really of of where you are and what your body and what your face has has been through and has witnessed and 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 accepting that is feels like quite a big hurdle in in the age that we live in now so that's been that's been an interesting one to bear in mind and a lot of people have been in touch about that one yeah yeah um i'd just like to go back to what you mentioned earlier about how the, the sort of counterintuitive idea that sometimes being melancholy can make you happier. I was quite interested to to note that in your section on Ireland about how um, sharing sort of sad or scary stories can bring you together as a community. Yes, isn't that great? So there's psychologists from Oxford University have found that hearing harrowing tales can help with group bonding, as well as triggering endorphins as our body gets ready to fight off imagined pain in real life. So as well as giving us a, a bonding shared experience, getting scared or sharing sad or melancholy stories in a group setting counterintuitively makes us happier. Um, 
And as well, my editor was at pains for me to point out that drinking is not scientifically endorsed, but researchers from LSE <laughs> found that happiness levels increased by almost 11% when a test group of, of selfless volunteers drank alcohol in a social environment. So the Irish crack, um, this idea that, you know, it's not just getting giddy with a pint of Guinness, it's at its heart, it's storytelling, but the, the alcohol element, which... Um, many of us will associate with with the Irish crack certainly can play a part in this um, in, in terms of group bonding and in terms of um, tr traditionally, I guess, in some studies, happiness. Okay, that's really interesting. So now I'd like to, to just change tack slightly and ask, um, how did you go about researching this? How did you go about trying to find a way to accurately represent each culture that you were talking about? Because you talk about such a wide variety of different countries and cultures. Yes, and I and there will doubtless be some I've got wrong. But uh, so I uh, live in Denmark now. I have moved here uh, in the beginning of 2013, and I wrote a book about Danish happiness, the year of living Danishly, and it was published around the world. And I started to get messages from readers all around the world, um, telling me sharing really that their own stories and their own unique happiness concepts from their countries, which struck me as a really interesting thing. There is a universal impulse to share our stories and to try to find happiness, even in the most dire of circumstances. Um, and where I live now is a, is a strange sort of international community in that it really is an international community. People socialize, people talk. And so people from all over the world, I would interact with on a daily basis and people started telling me their stories and sharing. So, you know, for instance, there's a, a there's an a Syrian um, asylum center near me. So I've I met some Syrians in the recent years. Uh, there are people from Canada, people from Israel, people from South Africa. So there were people from all over who were opening up to me. And I really want it to be the stories of real people uh, doing normal jobs like you and me, uh, living their normal lives, and then look a little bit more into maybe the history of the concepts and the research, um, what, what science says that the concept could be contributing in terms of happiness, in terms of well-being in these countries. So really, it became friends or friends of friends. And it was all personal testimonies and interviews with people from all over the world. Um, and it was a very interesting and humbling process really the world seemed much bigger and much smaller by the end when you realize that there's so much we still don't know and also that people are, are pretty similar wherever they are in the world everybody sleeps and loves and cries and is happy about things but this this drive to be happy and this drive towards optimism seemed to be a universal no matter how difficult people's circumstances were and and what they'd been through so that struck me as, especially in these times where we have rolling news and we have social media and it feels as though the world is a terrible place. But negativity bias means that, that as human beings, we experience bad events more intensely than we do the good. And we also remember them more. But that doesn't mean bad is all there is. So I really wanted to find a way to um, offer a, a sort of a counter to this and offer some of these positive stories to help stay hopeful, really. Speaking sort of generally about the British public, um, what do you think we could learn f the most about how to be happy? Do, do you think there's any ideas or cultures in particular that could teach us in general a lot about how to be happy? Uh, interesting. I think 
I would struggle to pinpoint just one. It would be like choosing my favorite child. But I think <laughs> there is a lot about sharing that uh, having lived in Scandinavia for a while now, I think it strikes me and being raised an only child in Margaret Thatcher's Britain, I did not grow up to be good at sharing. And I think we have to be a little bit more community minded in the UK than we currently are. And and that's, you know, that's not to generalize. Of course, different parts of the country are different. It's different in urban areas and in the countryside and north and south and et cetera. But I think there has to be more of a sort of a communal mentality and an idea that we would look out for each other. Um, and then I guess as well, we are really good at satire in England. We're, we're really funny and we're great at cheerful and we really excel at that. But maybe satire can tip into snark quite a lot of the time. And, and we could do with perhaps taking more of the joy that people do in other countries, as well as some of the resilience, I guess, as well, because there's no point just uh, complaining about things without finding a way to a way through them, a way to make things better. Um, what was your favourite one to learn about? What was one that sort of took you by surprise, I suppose? Um, I think, well, I mean, the pants drinking in Finland is pretty special. If anyone <laughs> has not heard of this, there's this Kalsari Kanit, which is this idea of, of, as my friend Marianne explained it to me, you know, when you hit 30, maybe you don't want to go out all the time, but you still want a beer. So you just strip down to your underwear and you just drink in your pants at home. Um, and this idea of why you would do it in your pants rather than in your pajamas or in, you know, some cozy leisure wear and apparently it's because all of the insulation and all the heating is so good in Finland that it's it's just not necessary um but I also quite like I guess uh, yeah I, I loved learning about the hacker in New Zealand I loved the Brazilian sodaji this sort of idea that it, this permission almost to to be sad sometimes feels very positive. Um, and Iceland, they have this, this thing, Tataradost, which is, again, it's another of these ones of it'll all work out. And Icelanders, any Icelanders I've ever met are just incredibly impressive and not necessarily boastful, but they just have this idea that they're capable of greatness because they are Icelandic. And Iceland has punched above its weight in terms of artists and writers and um you know, CrossFit in terms of physical endeavours in football and stuff in recent years. So um, it made me want to be a little bit more like an Icelandic Viking by the end. <laughs> so from what you've learned whilst researching this book, is there anything that you've taken on and started doing differently? Well, other than hiding behind my coats in my own personal Narnia, <laughs> making my small town seller, um, yes, I, I try to, you know, I'm a writer, so by... I'm good at getting out there and talking to people, but I can also be quite a solitary creature and I'm very happy writing by myself. And I'm trying to uh, embrace my Irish heritage and embrace the crack a bit more and just sort of think, well, now I'll stay up till 2 a.m. It's fine. And just indulge in these sort of long, deep conversations. Um, I'm trying to be more in touch with my emotions and my physicality uh, as the, the hacker from New Zealand taught me to be, um, that's something that we don't tend to do often, certainly as women in the UK, is, is take up space and be loud. And this is not a time for tribalism or aggression, but the idea of being more confident in my body felt like something very positive. Um, and 
and yeah, I guess Bhutan was just a really good reminder that the planet is all of our responsibilities and and sustainability is not just some worthy thing to be conscious of. And it's not just about not using plastic drinking straws. It's about trying to consume less, as with the Indian Jugard as well, just consume less and just be a bit more creative and, and think a little bit more before I consume and before I uh, do something that could have an impact on other people or the planet. That was Helen Russell, whose book, The Atlas of Happiness, is out now. Thanks for listening to the Science Focus podcast. In the latest issue of BBC Focus magazine, we look into China's Chang'e 4 lunar mission and ask whether this is the start of a new space race. We're also examining a bizarre condition called aphantasia, in which sufferers can't imagine things with their mind's eye. And you can also read about whether accents are dying out and about a man who's on a mission to image every fish in the sea using a CT scanner. And as always, there's much, much more inside. Remember, if you like what you hear, then please rate, review and share with anybody you think might enjoy our podcast. You can also subscribe and leave us a review on your favourite podcast apps. Also, if there's anybody you'd like us to speak to, or a topic you'd like us to cover, then please do let us know on Twitter at, at ScienceFocus. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.